When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. The Slate Culture Gab Fest is brought to you by BowlingBranch.com, the company that makes luxury betting affordable. Get the nicest sheets you've ever owned for about half the price of what stores and boutiques are charging. Order right now and they'll give you $50 off a set of sheets plus free shipping. Go to BowlingBranch.com, that's B-O-L-L-A-N-D-B-R-A-N-C-H.com, and use the promo code CULTURE. And by Club W, leading the grape-to-glass wine revolution. Answer just six simple questions at ClubW.com, and their algorithm will create a palette profile just for you. Get wine directly to your door, perfectly customized to match your taste. For 50% off your first order, go to ClubW.com slash culture. And by the 21st Annual Critics' Choice Awards. Tune in live January 17th at 8 p.m. Eastern, 5 p.m. Pacific to see who in film and TV takes the top prizes. Only on A&E. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, I'm Dana Stevens, and this is the Slate Culture Gabfest Spark Oi edition. It's Wednesday, January 6, 2016, and on today's show, we're going to talk about first The Revenant, the new film from Alejandro Iñárritu, starring Leonardo DiCaprio as a stranded fur trapper. And next, the Japanese cleaning and organization expert Marie Kondo, whose book The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up had people all over the world throwing out their belongings by the garbage bag, has a new book out called Spark Joy, and we'll discuss it with Slate's book critic, Laura Miller. And finally, we'll discuss an essay about profanity, its uses and misuses in the English language. Julia and Steve are both out this week, but we have a great panel of guests. Joining me is Slate's book critic, Laura Miller. Hi, Laura. Hi, Dana. And Mike Pesca, host of Slate's inimitable daily podcast, The Gist. Hello, Mike. Thank you. And thank you for not imitating it. I could not inimitate it it, if I tried. Hence, it's inimitability. Thank you. (laughs) We tried to have an imitable open source podcast, but it didn't work. (laughs) We went the other direction. Copyright issues. Mm -hmm. And as usual, before we get started, we have a couple bits of business to talk about. The first one is an announcement about a Slate live show coming up. Mom and Dad are fighting our wonderful parenting podcast with Dan Coyce and Allison Benedict. We'll have a live show later this month. It's going to be in Brooklyn, New York at the Bell House, a great venue, on Tuesday, January 26th. And they have a great guest that they've invited, the First Lady of New York City, the wife of Mayor Bill de Blasio, Shirlane McRae, who I did not know is also a poet and will apparently be bringing some of her poetry and talking about poetry with Dan and Allison. So to get tickets, you can go to slate.com slash live. Again, that's Mom and Dad are Fighting Live in Brooklyn at the Bell House on Tuesday, January 26th. We had one more bit of business. Mike, you want to take it away? Sure. So on my show, The Gist, which has been described as inimitable, we have on a guy named Matthew Dix who tells great stories and tells you how to tell stories. And he's a 20-time Moth Story Slam champion. And a few, it was about a year ago, we put a call out, hey, Matt will uh, coach you up in a story. And we took calls. And this guy, Frank Kennedy, has been working with Matt Dix. And now Frank is going to be debuting his story. And the event is called Story Collider. What Story Collider is, it's pretty much stories of science. This event will take place Friday, January 15th. And in addition to Frank Kennedy, also telling stories will be physicist turned storyteller Ben Lilly, Rachel Maddow shows in-house astrophysicist Summer Ash, and a guy named Mike Pesca. So 
We also want to say Slate Plus members are invited to join me and Matthew Dix and the storytellers for a complimentary happy hour before the show, which is upstairs at the KGB bar. The show is at the Crane Theater in Brooklyn, and you could find out all this stuff by visiting slate.com slash live. All right. That's a lot of good live events about to happen. Mm. So let's turn to The Revenant, the new film by Alejandro Iñárritu, who, be it noted, directed the Oscar-winning best picture of last year, Birdman. It stars Leonardo DiCaprio. It's based quite loosely on a true story and then a novel that was loosely in turn based on that story. It takes place in the 1820s in an unnamed place that seems to be somewhere in the Dakota territories. And um, to give a thumbnail sketch of the story, it is essentially a survival narrative, a nature a survival narrative. Story. And a revenge story, which yeah. is, I think, the part that Inyari 2 laid in over the, uh, the original story. And so it tells the somewhat true story of Hugh Glass, a fur trapper who is left for dead or left while dying after a bear mauling by some of his companions and manages literally to crawl from the shallow grave that's been buried from him to heal his own wounds and to go, I think in real life it was something like 350 miles through untracked, uncharted land in an attempt to find the man who had left him there for dead and, and take his revenge. The man who left him there for dead is played by Tom Hardy. And really it's sort of a two-man film, although there are lots of other characters. It's all about the dyad of of these two guys. And as a warning before we start this discussion, we may get into some light spoilage. So if you don't want to know anything about what happens in The Revenant, you can forward ahead. Anne, our producer, is going to pop on and tell you exactly what minute you need to get to to the podcast not to hear anything else about The Revenant. If you would like to skip this segment, just fast forward to 21 minutes. So the film opened on Christmas Day, which is always the sign of an Oscar-seeking prestige movie. And it's being positioned, I think in particular DiCaprio's performance is being positioned in the Oscar race very heavily. I'm very curious to hear what you guys think about The Revenant. First of all, let's, let's listen to a clip. Or just to give people some some image in their mind of what goes with all that grunting and horse neighing, what's happening in that scene? That's the scene where he is riding a horse that he is, or a pony really, that he's stolen from some French trappers, and suddenly some Indians see him and begin to attack him, and he's sort of riding desperately for his life, and then the horse just goes over a cliff. So one might think that that was an odd audio excerpt to choose for a podcast, given that there's no dialogue and you hear nothing but grunting, the sound of horses and, you know, apparently the sound of of warfare. But in fact, that's a very typical illustrative audio clip of The Revenant, wouldn't you say? Yeah, there's not a lot of dialogue in it. So, Mike, tell me, what did you think, The Revenant? Will you send people to see it? Uh, depending on the type of person they are, if someone says, I really don't like blood, gore, horse innards, or scenes of buffalo being eaten, no, not for you. But if uh, you're willing to go with the movie, and even if you're like me, so it overcame some preconceptions, objections. One, to me, Leonardo DiCaprio, of all the pretty actors, is the worst. I just don't, I rarely think he transcends either his looks or my conception of him. I think in most, I think that, for instance, in The Wolf of Wall Street, it was fine. In Gangs of New York, I didn't buy him. In The Aviator, I definitely didn't buy him, but I really bought him here. He doesn't look like Leo DiCaprio. And compared to the other Jake Gyllenhaals or Ryan Gosling's, I think he's just, you know, the world of pretty actors. I think he's the worst. I also thought that it was a real man. I love the director. Uh, I knew that he'd be willing and eager to put his characters in extremists because not just Birdman, but Amoris Peros, which was the first time I encountered him, was lots of scenes of gore. And that doesn't bother me. In fact, when it's well done, I love it. But I thought it would be a real man versus nature, and that would be most of the conflict. So we'd see him. Famously, there were all these, and it made its way into the presidential race about his attack by a bear reputedly a sexual attack, according to Jeb Bush's advisor. That was an insane thing that happened. Did you know about this? No. The Drudge Report report reported that this new Leo DiCaprio movie had Leo being raped by a bear. And a Jeb Bush advisor (laughs) tweeted out if this... (laughs) 
<laughs> how could this be true? It, it's not true, folks. There was I don't no understand how that helps or hurts Jeb Bush to make that observation on <laughs> Well, Twitter. we see where he is on the, in the polls, don't we? Yeah. Um, so I thought it would be man versus nature and most of the conflict would him be up a mountain or in a river or something. But the thing I loved most about this movie is from a screenplay perspective. Now, there's no very little dialogue, so that's not what we mean by screenplay. But I just think he expertly sets up the antagonist. For moments, we're like, well, Tom Hardy is the antagonist. We think it's kind of be, going to be pretty cliched. But then I think there's moments when you see Tom Hardy volunteer to sit with the dying post-bear attack, Leo DiCaprio, where we say to ourselves, oh, uh, his motivations make a bit of sense to us. He's doing it for the money. And then things turn a little bit. I think just think it's very cleverly constructed where you have a few strains going on. You have man versus nature, but you also have the Tom Hardy character out there as someone for DiCaprio to focus on like a quest. But then overlaid against this, you have other interesting characters like uh, French fur trappers, but also these re-Indians, they're called the re-Indians, who serve as somewhat of a deus ex machina, but also kind of the soul of the story where you really realize what the white man is doing to their land, and then they come in in interesting ways plot-wise. So I just thought it was a really riveting visual movie, which everyone will say, but also a really well-written movie. Laura, what about you? I loved this movie. The thing that I really want, even a part that, you know, you can have no story and really sketchy characters, but if you create a really powerful sense of place for me, I'm just very easy. And the sound design on this, the photography, the way that, you know, the wounds that people have are so, it's bloody, but they look real. And the way that it conveys how hard it was how harsh that environment was, how cold it was, how you were always having to sort of slosh through water or trudge through the snow and the tenuous clinging that everyone has to life mm-hmm. in these conditions. It totally just, I was washed away by it. I just, I have no critical distance from wow, it. Wow, interesting. I think I like this movie a lot less than either one of you. I think for the first hour, Laura, I was on exactly that page, that it, the, the sense of place was so overpowering, even though we never knew exactly where it was. This is not one of those movies that gives you a legend at the bottom that says, you know, Calgary, 1820, or wherever it was filmed. I think it was filmed in, in, in Canada for the most part. For the first hour, I was swept up in that. And the, the cinematography by the great Mexican cinematographer, Emmanuel Lubezki, who also won an Oscar for Birdman last year, is really, really sensational. You know, there were a lot of physical hardships on this shoot, in large part because of the philosophy of Inyaritu and, and Lubezki that they wanted to use only natural light, which when you're shooting way, way up in the north in winter means that you only have a few hours of light a day to shoot in, you know, that they wanted everything to be practical effects and people to be really riding their horses and Leo to be really wading through the half-frozen rivers. And so I think it was one of those shoots where, as you say, the toil and the, the trudging were sort of, they were being born on the body of the actors as well. And so that did give it a real sense of survival narrative. And I I think I loved that too. But everything that happened basically from the moment that Leo somehow crawled out of his grave and started to, to head toward Tom Hardy, I felt like not only was it extremely schematic and, and predictable after that, but that I started to feel like it was a, a, a sadomasochistic movie in a way, which is something that Inyaritu has certainly been guilty of in the past, that he sort of wants to just grind the audience's face into the horribleness of whatever the character is experiencing. And that starts to become almost the sole gambit of the film rather than to tell someone's story. Did either of you feel that at all, that Inyaritu was just trying to, to rough you up? No, I... I knew that this would be the criticism, and indeed it was, that it becomes a slog or that there is this masochistic feel to it. And I guess one uh, counter to that would be, well, that gets you into the feel of the movie. But I don't really think that's what it was. I think that at a certain point, yes, schematic, he uses tropes that maybe seem a little bit predictable. But for me, that compelled me through the movie. So I was invested. I really wanted him to get his revenge on Tom Hardy, and I wanted to see how that played out. And Tom Hardy was good enough that I I was always compelled by his scenes and plus they change settings enough so that we got to see the fort where the fur trapping party or actually the fur hunting party was in so that was a different scene we got to see the french camp we got to see different elements of uh, of that milieu and also the movie is two hours 35 minutes and i think if he really wanted to be masochistic he could have given us a three hour five minute movie <laughs> he could have done a quentin tarantino and it, also did, and it didn't you know my one criticism of birdman was you could have 
end of that movie at seven different places and you and you would say, yeah, that's okay. That was the whole movie. He didn't know how to end it. At least this one, there are perhaps things, elements in the middle, the extra Native American who he befriends or who kind of saves him. Maybe that stuff could have been shortened, but you knew that it had to end in a certain place. I don't think they rushed the ending. Maybe it was a long, hard way to get there, but I thought the payoff was good. It was maybe a little too long, but since the whole premise of it was that it was about an ordeal, I felt okay about that. It wasn't, it didn't feel gratuitous. And I particularly liked the way that there are these sort of arbitrary occurrences. For example, the Leo DiCaprio character helps someone who later is responsible for him being spared in, you know, in another situation. And there are just these chance events that spell the difference between life and death or little gestures that people make that pay out later. And that, to me, also conveyed in the storytelling what it's like to live in a in a in really a wilderness where, you know, you just happen to not to just step between the mother bear and her cubs at the worst possible moment. And as a result, your whole life is basically ruined. I would agree with that. And I think also that the uh, interplay between or among, really, there's several groups, the the French fur trappers, then this American group that we're accompanying with Tom Hardy and Leonardo DiCaprio, and the various Indian tribes that they run across, either in the setting, in, in warlike settings, or in there's a, there's a scene where another Indian helps Leonardo DiCaprio to survive, that those were well handled in, in terms of not turning it into a Cowboys and Indians movie. I mean, there may have been a little bit of noble savage romanticism in these flashbacks to, to Leo's former life with his Pawnee wife. But in general, I thought that this movie skirted very well, you know, that, that problem that we have when we reenact the, the war for control of this continent mm-hmm. as, a, as a kind of Cowboys and Indians fantasy. Well, and, and the, the dispossessed Indian, the Indian who is the kindest to him, says, Sue killed my family, that they're bonded over this loss that is not just a colonial loss. I mean, the Sioux were incredibly brutal people, especially the Crow. And so you get the sense that although there is a larger colonial backdrop, that it is just a really brutal environment where anybody could turn against you. Right. I will tell you the uh, three things that I like least about this movie. One, you mentioned those flashbacks with his wife. We should mention that he he uh, he married a Pawnee woman and had a son with her. But they were very reminiscent of Russell Crowe and Gladiator and the Fields of Elysium. And now we understand the stakes and the backstory. You know, f- and and, there's and a they lot felt of... put in there in order to provide that emotional element. Yeah, right? they definitely. That's what I mean by schematic, right yes, there. Yes, that that was bad. That was bad schema. The second thing that I didn't love, he became Wolverine at the end. He really had super healing powers. You know, in real he life. He did bounce back from that bear mall. He, he did all right. Like he gritted his teeth and couldn't talk. But soon he was, you know, executing pretty tricky, crafty maneuvers to trick Tom Hardy into uh, thinking he had shot the right guy when, in fact, he hadn't. But the big overarching theme was about the marketing and how often they told us this was based on actual events. They don't say a true story. And A, I don't care. I'm sure the marketing shows that more people will see the movie. But I think it's a cheat. I think it's an artistic cheat that if that's the way to get you more invested by saying it's based on actual events. And when you really examine the record, I mean, you said it was based on a book that was based on a real story. I mean, we're talking about essentially a tall tale, you know, maybe not Pecos Bill or Paul Bunyan, but a conflated story from 1820 where maybe there was an element of truth. Some guy was 200 miles from a fort and maybe there was a bear mauling and he crawled back. I also read in the original story, he let Maggie eat his flesh so gangrene wouldn't set in and that wasn't in the movie the one disgusting thing they I, left out I can't believe Inyaritu would pass up the opportunity yeah, right? to film that so no maggots often, in the winter no, no maggots ma- in the- oh yeah. <laughs> yeah but how often they had to tell us that it was based on actual events as if that if there was a flaw in the movie that would make up for it if that gets us more invested in it and how real were the events it's a bit of a trend I mean it's been a long time trend in movie making and I object to it so you object not to the fact that it was based on a true story, but that it was marketed with that. How as often of they said it, right? If you had found out, oh, ba- something like this happened or was the jumping off, that's all it was. Maybe some names were used and it was the dr- jumping off point for our, the story that we saw. But how closely it adhered to reality, I, I would think very, very little. 
I guess, I mean, as usual, I try to pay as little attention to the marketing campaign and trailers and so and forth as possible. You have to possible. see the movie anyway, no matter how it's marketed. So, <laughs> right, yeah. right. No, but yeah, for that precise reason, I try to go in knowing as little as possible about how they want me to think about the movie or what I'm going to see on screen. You know, I don't even like visual spoilers. I, I like it all to be new. But I have to say that the fact that it was based on a true story, to me, sort of added to the the wow factor. You know, just imagining, even if all you have to imagine is someone surviving alone in that wilderness, forget about the revenge narrative or, you know, any encounters that he has along the way, just that elemental image of a lone man against the elements and that it had actually happened was powerful for me. And as someone who likes to read these sort of true life survival stories and think, what would I do if I were in that situation? At the point where his horse has died from falling off the cliff, there's this scene where the horse is is lying there and he's looking at it and I'm thinking, oh, yes, he's going to cut open the horse and take out its guts and get inside the horse. You knew it horse. was going to happen? I, 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 when he started to cut the horse, I was like, yeah. yes, yes, because I <laughs> knew that people had done this and I've never seen that in a movie and I've always was fascinated by the idea that people who killed large animals like this in, in really cold conditions use the body heat of their, of their prey Well, what about Empire, Empire Strikes Back with the Tauntaun? You okay, saw that? I, I did, but I don't remember a single thing in it. <laughs> right. He slices those hands, slices the tauntaun open with the lightsaber, shoves Luke inside, and says, I thought these things smelled bad on the outside. See, that's the kind of dialogue we were missing from this movie. <laughs> but yeah, it's very tauntaun-esque. Yeah. I just feel like that has that has to become one of the big memes of Oscar season, is like, the man got inside a horse, yeah. and you didn't yeah. give him a little gold statue? Yeah, really. <laughs> So I guess we sort of have a mixed jury here. I guess Mike is saying if you like extreme survival stories, if you can stomach seeing a horse slit open and uh, and yes, yeah, if gore. You, there's gore. There's there's lots of gore. There's very little dialogue. And I think arguably you could say this movie is a bit of a slog, but it is a movie about a slog. So that's somewhat fitting. I think to me it felt in the sense that Birdman did as well, like a ride. It was a ride movie. You know, while I was experiencing it, it was intense and thrilling and terrifying. And what was going to happen next to this poor man? And the minute it ended, I stopped thinking about it and never thought about it again, which maybe that's that's Inyaritu's thing. But there are worse things a movie can do to you than take you on a thrilling ride. So The Revenant, Alejandro Inyaritu, it's in theaters now. Go and see it if you're interested and tell us what you thought at facebook.com slash culturefest. And now we've reached the moment when we hear from our first sponsor. Laura, what do we have this week? Well, this week's Slate Culture Gabfest is sponsored by Bowl and Branch. There is one important thing you can do to help ensure that you have a good day, and that's to have a good night's sleep the night before. One company has set out to make this possible. It's Bowl and Branch. They've reinvented sheets and bedding with the sole purpose of making your nights more comfortable than ever. Dana, I know you have Bowl and Branch sheets, so tell us all about them. Well, I just, I love these sheets and I love this company. So I'm going to sound like a shill, but this experience did happen to me and I much appreciate it is that Julia was raving so much about her bowl and branch sheets after reading her first ad that I decided to use the Culture Fest code and get myself some sheets. Oh, so you're not a shill. I mean, you, we are being paid to say the ad, but you actually <laughs> paid, paid your own money. Well, sheets? I haven't finished my story oh. yet. So, so I went on put everything in, and then I never saw the place where you added the promo code, I think because they used different language that said something like, instead of promo code, it said something else. I didn't see that space, so I ended up buying the sheets at full price. Like a sucker! <laughs> but then I wrote a note to to Bowl and Branch, just to their general address, saying, hi, I sponsor a podcast that yeah. you advertise your sheets on. I've heard they're really wonderful. I just forgot to enter my promo code. Can you please give me the discount on these sheets? And you know customer service there is on it because they're so well-rested. Well, but as it turns out, Bowling Branch is this tiny, wonderful company that is really run by the CEO and his wife. It's a couple that started this company together. And and he himself wrote me back and said, forget about the promo code. I'm sending you free sheets. Awesome. And uh, and then he also sent me a little video about how their sheets are made and they use very fair labor practices. And it really did seem like they're a green company, a responsible company, and a company that answers their email within hours, just all around wonderful. And then when the sheets arrived... They were fantastic. So the next time someone asks you, how could you sleep at night, you answer, bowl and branch. branch. Indeed. <laughs> you can get these amazing sheets only in one place, and that is bowlandbranch.com, where you know you're paying for quality sheets and not for department store overhead. Go online to bowl, that's B-O-L-L, and branch.com, and they'll let you try them risk-free for 30 nights. You'll also get 20% off your entire order, sheets, towels, blankets, duvet covers, everything, by using the promo code CULTURE. That's bowlandbranch.com, promo code CULTURE. 
Okay, Dana, back to the show. All right, let's move on to topic two. So, Laura, you just wrote a long piece about Marie Kondo, the cleaning guru. It's hard to even sort of describe what, what figure she is in the in the decluttering world and how she's made her mark in the last year. You talked about both the life-changing magic of tidying up, which is her book from last year? Yes, it came out about this time of year last year. And I know that it, it swept the nation because I heard people talking about it and cleaning mm. their houses based on it. And I was sort of already done with snickering at it when it so happened that I was waiting for my daughter to get out of a lesson one day, looking through some books in the bookstore, and I fell into the spell of the life-changing magic of tidying up. And as it happens, I just finished reading it a few days ago. And now I'm about to embark on a huge decluttering mission of, of my own house. So I'm, I'm especially interested to hear right now what your take was on, on Marie Kondo. Well, this book has been huge. It's sold upwards of three million copies globally and, you know, just been parked on the bestseller list in the U.S. for the entire year. And it is a sort of a cult. There are people who call themselves converts, spelled with a K, because her name, Kondo, is spelled with a K, who get online and, and discuss their various purges and tidying campaigns. And um, I'm actually already fairly tidy. And so some of this, I was just like, it didn't feel that relevant to me. I don't have a lot of stuff that I need to throw away because every year before a house sitter comes to stay in my apartment, which is a small New York City apartment for the summer, I do a, a major purge of stuff. And I don't have a problem throwing stuff away. And But I did learn certain sort of finer points of folding from her that I, you know, kind of obsessively relished and, and have employed. And I open my sock drawer and go, ah, oh, yes, even better than it was before. <laughs> um, so I'm actually a tidy person. I, I mean, my piece has been received as a as a sort of indefensive clutter piece, but, uh, but I'm more dirty than I am cluttered. I'm not a good duster. And so I actually have dust rabbits. They can't really be called bunnies anymore. And dust buffaloes. <laughs> dust, dust, buffaloes. dust Harvey the if, I'm waiting for them to get big enough so that when it gets really cold, I can cut them open and get inside <laughs> and sleep at night. What shocked me about this book was that it is so draconian. She's, she's fairly young. She's 30 years old. And the things that she wants people to throw out, I just think, no, don't do that. Do not throw away most of your photos. She, there's this point where she says, you tell yourself you're going to look at these photos when you're old, but that will never happen. And I'm like, that is not true. <laughs> if there's one thing I wish I had more of from my 20s, it's photos of my friends and places I lived. And, and or letters or diaries, you know, she had one of she convinced one of her clients to throw away a diary and letters from an old boyfriend. That seemed crazy to me. And also, she only has thirty books. She's she's a big book purger, and she's basically like, don't keep those books you think you're going to read someday. Well, but doesn't she give? I remember she gives an exception. She says, unless you're a scholar or an author. And so I just immediately took that exception. <laughs> like, fine, all four thousand books yeah. are staying in my apartment. Well, I practice a very strict economy. As someone who gets sent a total onslaught of books, I have a section of my apartment that is for the temporary collection of books that are just out or about to come out or whatever that I need to keep for my immediate work. And then I have my permanent library and no book gets to join the permanent library until another book goes out. In many ways, I agree with some of her strictness, but she's just so excessive. And then her relationship to possessions is also weirdly sort of poignant. It's a strange thing where she wants to kill all of these possessions, and then she also thinks of of them as alive, which has something to do with the fact of Japanese animism. She was a, a shrine maiden in a Shinto shrine at, at one point. Cleanest and, shrine ever. <laughs> <laughs> Not like the usual filthy Shinto That's shrine. That's right. Yeah. <laughs> so the idea that objects have some kind of soul to them is, is a, a little bit less weird in that context. But still, she is someone who comes home and puts her handbag away and says, thank you for serving me so well today, and who worries that if you don't, if you roll up your socks, you're being cruel to them because they suffer all day. That's one of the stuck. most forceful sentences yeah. in the whole book. I think she even uses all caps to say, never ball up your socks, yeah, which I've been doing my entire life. Yeah. But uh, she is right that folding them is a much better way to store them. And it's also a much more efficient way to store them. But, you know, the idea that, that you would have this emotional rejection of, of balling socks is, is a little nutty. And then at one point, she finds a bag of coins in some client's closet because she's a professional organizer. 
And she describes this bag of coins as heartrending mm-hmm. because they had been stripped of their dignity as money. And it, it just seemed a little over the top. And, and then, as I write in my piece, there is a point where she says she first learned about unconditional love not from her family or her friends, but from her possessions, which I did think was the saddest sentence I had ever read. Yeah. The subtitle of the book is One Goofy Woman Who's Never Heard of the Cloud tells you how to clean up. I mean, isn't that the answer? To mo- the book does not deal with technology, does it? Doesn't. It doesn't. I know. It's so crazy. Does Spark Joy, the new book, go into that um, at all? A little bit, but she's really much more concerned with material objects. I, I gather she's not an e-book person because, it, for me, the, the need to have a substantial library is a professional one, and the e-book revolution has really made that more possible for me. I mean, I have yes. hundreds of books on my iPad or on my computer, and that just makes it so much easier for me to be able to refer to things easily. Many of the books I kept were reference or reference books or nonfiction books where I'd have to access specific facts, not the joy of the prose. And now that I could just know that the book exists, vaguely have an idea of it and put it into Amazon, don't need the books anymore. She doesn't consider I this. Have, I have a, 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 some friends who have a small family and they live in Venice Beach, California, and they love, love their house, but it's a very small house. And as their kids have gotten older and they've acquired more and more possessions, they haven't wanted to leave this house. And so one of the things they've done is gotten rid of a lot of their books, which many people are horrified by. But as the husband put it, these are often books that they've had since they were in college. They don't really reread them. And if they really need another copy of The Scarlet Letter, they can just order it on Amazon. <laughs> and and they'd rather keep their house. So that makes sense to me. However, one of the craziest things that Marie Kondo did was that she wanted to save... She had books that she liked parts of them, but she didn't necessarily want to keep the whole thing. And so she tore out pages from the books with the passages or sentences or or ideas that she liked. And she put them into a, a kind of a folder yes. with the idea that she would look at the folder at some point. And then she threw these mutilated books away, I guess. I mean, there's no way you could, anyone could use them again after that. So it was very destructive. And then at a certain point, she realized that she never read the folder. So she threw that out. And that seemed really demented to me. <laughs> Well, that's, that clearly is the work of someone who cares much more about disorganization than about books, because it really it kind of attacks the fundamental taboo of, of the integrity of the book. Yeah. But there were moments in reading it that I felt that, you know, that self-help shock of recognition, like, oh, she understands, you know, she understands something about about my clutter and why I have it and how to get rid of it. And I, unlike the two of you, it sounds like, do feel oppressed by my clutter. I actually have an organization problem and in the past have hired a professional organization consultant to come try and get me organized. But she didn't have, she was not a Marie Kondo, put it that way. She was not sort of trying to make my things seem alive and spark joy every time I touch them. She was more about systems and carbonite backup and filing and the kind of the tech stuff and that you Marie were talking Kondo about, Mike. really does not approve of that strategy. So, so, She's a very fundamentalist about so her method. Did this woman's, what I would think of as practical approach, not work? And you needed a more, let's say, zen-like or holistic approach, I deeper, think, I getting think I to did. understand you and your soul? I think so. I mean, I think she was the woman who came in to help, who was great, was applying pre-existing systems you know, and sort of making me start these systems. For example, she had me start a new email account that was just for things like bills, you know, bank statements, credit card statements, things like that. Basically sort of like a business account, an LLC account for my for myself. And the truth is that what ended up happening was I forgot that account existed and would not look at it for months. <laughs> right. And then would suddenly be getting overdue statements. So I, I reversed that system. Other things she suggested were helpful, but I think that the most helpful sentence for me in this book, and I think different people are moved by different parts of the book. I was just talking to a friend who condified her entire house last year and uh, and who said that the thing that really moved her was the precise thing you laughed at about gratitude, about thanking your objects before you let go of them. So the idea is that you would get a jacket that never fit you, but you kept it around think, thinking maybe one day I'll wear it and just say, thank you, jacket, for teaching me what doesn't suit me. Get rid of it. That's a little fruity for me. But the sentence that did it for me was something about, and it may have been when she was talking about mementos and photos and whether to get rid of them, a moment when she said, your house is a place for the person you are now. (laughs) The person who lives in your house is is the person of the present, not the person of the past or the future. And while that doesn't make me want to get rid of all my college textbooks, it it does make me feel like, wait a minute, why am I living amidst, why am I sort of stepping on my little pony accessories every day? You know, like, why am, who brought this stuff into my house and why is it overtaking me? To sort of realize that 
your house needs to be a comfortable place for you to live so that you can find your stuff was for some reason very um, affirming for me and gave me the energy to go on this binge that I'm about to go on that's already three garbage bags in. But saying it's the house of the present, doesn't that argue for you not stocking milk in your refrigerator with more than an expiration date a day in the future <laughs> or Band-Aids in case you cut yourself? All right, how narrowly are yeah. we defining this present? You said something, but so... I think that I, co- I talked about the person who came and talked about files not working out as the practical person. So there, this is the practical aspect of the fruity advice of giving gratitude. So here's the practical problem. Why don't we throw away stuff that we shouldn't throw? What's the, what's the problem with throwing away this jacket that doesn't fit? It's a psychological problem. So what's the practical solution? Let's find a psychological answer to whatever is going on. Her psychological answer is this game of thank you and there's the gratitude. So that actually winds up being very practical. If that is, if you are experiencing the psychological problem of not throwing away something that you should be throwing away. Right. I mean, I think as a clutter expert, I'm sure she works with a lot of people like me and way worse. I'm not a hoarder, but I understand the instinct of I don't want to buy tons more stuff and keep it. But I have a very hard time letting go of things, especially mementos, papers, books, anything like that. I mean, essentially any piece of paper, once it's achieved a certain age, it becomes interesting, right? You find an old receipt from 20 years ago and you say, oh, look, I was shopping in that bookstore in San Francisco that I used to go with my favorite, right? I mean, memory Memories exist in paper in this way. They're bound up in it. And if you're a kind of person who has a hard time letting go of that, maybe you need a little bit of fruity animism in order to, to let that happen. Well, this book would definitely not be as successful as it has been if it didn't speak to these um, this, these emotions that we all have tied up in our stuff in one way or another. You know, whether it's like you're someone like me who loves throwing stuff away, which suggests an attitude or an approach that I have, or whether you sort of can't figure out which are the things that you need to keep or not, which is basically what her whole spark joy philosophy is is about, you know, like when you hold it in your hand, does it spark joy? So, you know, and if it doesn't, then away it goes. And if And if you feel sort of, if it makes you feel guilty or like, oh, a little anxious because you might need it someday, you know, ignore those feelings and just go with the joy feelings, and then you'll totally be surrounded by stuff that gives you joy. The downside of that <laughs> is that she actually threw away her screwdriver because she didn't like it, and then she broke a ruler that she actually really loved because she was trying to use it as a screwdriver. And so you do need to sort of tweak that approach a little bit. But it really depends on what your relationship with your stuff is. If you have a lot of guilt or feelings of obligation or you feel oppressed by your stuff, then maybe this book could be very helpful to you. And the people who need these organizers, uh, that's the feeling. It's anxiety. It's not anger and it's not uh, confusion. So I think maybe the person who talked about email account wasn't addressing what's going on. Everyone with too much stuff, the feeling is anxiety. It's, it's, uh, It's on that continuum. And so she speaks about anxiety. She seems to have a little too much grasshopper and not enough ant in her. Or maybe she has a neighbor with a good ratchet set. Who knows? <laughs> I'm also curious. I recently read a, some article about her going around promoting her new book, Spark Joy, and she's pregnant. She's going to have a baby this yeah. year. So for one thing, there's obviously going to be some sort of you know parenting-related condo book in the future. But also, I wonder how her relationship to clutter will change when she's stepping on little pony accessories around her yeah. perfectly uncluttered apartment. People seem to really resent her. That I mean, having written a piece that's been perceived as this anti-condo piece, whereas I think of it as more of just a condo skeptical piece. Plenty of people have been saying, have have responded by saying, well, she's pregnant. Now she'll see. Now she'll see. And there's a weird sort of dark glee to that that I find entertaining. Well, I just like picturing her child's play shelf, right? (laughs) You don't need to stack blocks. Just the one block is all you need. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, if you're a clutterer like me or an unclutterer like Laura and Mike or a clutterer who's happy with his level of clutter like Mike, take a look at Marie Kondo, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up and her new book, Spark Joy. And if they spark joy and or rage in you, come and tell us about it at facebook.com slash culturefest. And now it's the time in our show when we hear from our other sponsor. Mike, what have we got? There's a problem in this world, and now there is a solution. The problem, of course, you know what I'm going to say. There are times in your life when you are without wine. Yeah, we've all been there, and you didn't get to express your gratitude towards your wine. So there you are. You're wine-free. You've had a wine-free situation thrust upon you. What do you do to get your wine? Luckily, there is a solution. The solution is Club W, right? Like, let's say you come home. There's a long day. You want your wine. You don't have a bottle in the house. Or let's say, well, I'm thinking about going to the grocery store, but the wine aisle with 
all those labels, and I think I know what a Chardonnay is. Of course I know what a Chardonnay is, but maybe you drank the last half bottle of Chardonnay before walking to the grocery store, and now you have no way to orient yourself. Club W is there for you. It's a new wine club that sends wine directly to your door, and not only does Club W send you wine, they send you wine that you will love drinking because on their website, there's a six-question quiz. I suggest you do that before drinking any wine, and the quiz then calculates your palate, so every bottle you receive from Club W is perfectly tailored to your taste. Right now, Club W is offering Slate's Culture Gab Fest listeners 50% off the first order when they go to Club W slash culture. So don't ever be wine-free in that horrible wine-free situation again. Just go to clubw.com slash culture to get 50% off your first order. Don't you want to enter that six-question quiz to see what kinds of wine they think match your palate? That could be fun too. Clubw.com slash culture. Dana, now that we've cleansed our palate of that, back to you. All right. Thanks, Mike. All right, on to our third segment, which is going to be a discussion of profanity. This is going to be fun. There's an essay by Mark Edmondson in the L.A. Review of Books this week called On Shit, colon, Profanity as Weltanschauung by Mark Edmondson. Weltanschauung being, Laura, you're our book critic, world... World world view, world perception, world understanding, world condition. Right, one's perspective upon the world. And uh, we can get into what Mark Edmondson's argument is. It really is kind of an autobiographical essay about his own relationship to profanity, but I thought it would be a good way for us to open onto a larger discussion of the role of profanity in American culture, in podcasting, in conversation, in the media. And Mike, I want to start with you, especially because you are someone who moved from the NPR world to the podcasting world, right? So obviously you moved from a place where profanity is taboo on the radio to a place where you could, if you wanted, swear up a storm all day long on your daily podcast. So what was your response to this article and what do you think about profanity and its uses? Yes, more than taboo. It's actually prescribed by law. So we didn't even get a chance to really consider it. Although now places like NPR, since they have outlets like podcasts and the web. They have entered this discussion. Are words like asshole or those appropriate even for the web? And the NPR ombudsman or whatever uh, version of that they have came in and said no. And on my show, the gist, I said, not only is asshole appropriate, here's why it is. I did pretty much a taxonomy of assholes. And in writing that and performing that piece on the gist, I, pro- I felt, I think, I would assume a lot like the author of this piece, uh, Mark Edmondson, felt. It's so fun to really examine shit and fuck and these words and to write about the differences between these words and their near synonyms and to even title a piece on shit profanity as Weltanschung or I would prefer Weltendrack which I think means a world of shit, right? <laughs> um, yeah, and, and the points he raises... He goes beyond just saying that, hey, let's get over the fact that we have these seven classically in the Carlin formulation, seven dirty words. Let's words are words. Let's rehabilitate those words. Let's incorporate them into the language and let's consider their meaning, their power, how they are secular oaths. He elevates them to some extent. I have I've had many feelings, many uh, thoughts about different profanities. He gets to some of them. Like he even contrasts saying fuck with make love. I've thought similar things with there. There's this weird thing where the thing that's supposedly the dirty word like fart, maybe something you shouldn't say in mixed company, but the acceptable version of that past wind is much more yucky. Actually, it actually becomes much more disgusting. And please don't say that. I think the similar thing has gone on with the whole making of love. They're all they're all tied to things like your age and the age when the words were introduced. But uh, you know, I give him I give him kudos for taking me to places that uh, I hadn't even considered before. And, you know, I consider this for a living. Yeah, I especially appreciated his kind of division, his little taxonomy that he does of, of different kinds of profanity, where he says that, you know, essentially there, there are two forms of profanity, right? There's the sacred oath, God damn it, would be one, right? There's one where you're sort of reaching to a higher power to, as it were, like express their um It's disgust. your blasphem- blasphemous right. sort of mm-hmm. right. statements. That's There's, why they were forbidden, is that they were blasphemous. Right. And then Edmondson also says that historically that was the greater transgression, right? I mean, in the days when religious belief was much more common among the populace than now, and, and religion was a bigger driver of, of everyday human behavior, to say, God damn you, was was the worst thing that you could say. Um, but then the other form that he talks about, and I believe, he does he call these secular oaths? Then there's just the words that reduce everything to its kind of base biological essence, right? Words like shit and fuck, right? Words that, that take some 
act that maybe could be elevated and instead de-romanticize, de-glamorize and reduce it. Shit is a one word demystification, he says. And it's his favorite curse word as well. It, it, it has a lot of power. Yeah. It does and its job. Then well. he mentions also that, um, that he is particularly fond of an expression that brings those two streams together, which is holy shit. Yeah. <laughs> what I loved about this essay, which is just fantastic, I've, I've been a big fan of this writer for several years, but this he really hit it out of the park here, is the way that he captures how profanity creates different kinds of communities. It creates an inside and an outside. You know, parents don't want to think that their children use profanity because then it takes their child and makes their child a kid. But there is this fabulous kid, this neighborhood boy in this essay who is the person who taught him to swear. And I think one of my favorite lines is the part where his father finds out that this kid named Tony Tanzio has taught Mark to say the word asshole, and so he's forbidden to play with him anymore. And he was like, well, my father didn't understand. I didn't really have any choice uh, of whether I played with Tony or not. He simply appeared from time to time on the top of the fence by the oak with his floppy curls and his jester's rags and marvelous strong shoes that seemed to have been made by a village shoemaker for a boy who was about to go adventuring, often up the beanstalk maybe, to kneecap the giant. I just thought that he's, Tony Tanzio is the sort of spirit of transgression right there. He's climbing over the fence. He's got these shoes that can take him anywhere that are almost slightly magical. And he's going to tell Mark all of the things that Mark wants to know. And he's going to welcome him into the community of little boys where you sit there and talk about which swear words are worse and which aren't. And so much of that discussion about profanity and using it just with the boys and never letting your parents hear you say it, is what profanity is about, which is that it creates groups of people. You know, I don't use profanity when I'm around older people, but with my peers, I use it all the time. So, you know, what he says at the end of the piece, which is the thing that to me makes it really exceptional, is that you have to think about what kind of person you are if you use these words all the time, because they reflect just bringing everything down to this really basic biological level, if everything is profane for you, then maybe nothing is sacred. Mm -hmm. And that the opposition of those two things, the fact that profanity is kind of special in a way, also makes it possible for things to transcend, to be more special than that. So as icky as the expression making love is, (laughs) he says, if you can only talk about sex using the word fuck, then that actually does say something about how you think of sex. Do you guys say, uh, let me ask you this. I don't know if you think this is interesting. I say curse. That's the word I use for these words. Profanity, I say they're curse words. Some people say cuss. Maybe that's a Southernism. It sounds like an old gold prospector. Some people say swear. <laughs> I just say curse because that's how I was raised. I don't know which one best describes what I think of the words. I, they're not really a curse as in a magical spell, although maybe they have that effect. I don't know if there's a, they're a swear or an oath. Maybe they are a cuss. They are... Well, and then there's the, the, the childish expression, bad words. Words, you know, <laughs> yeah. and the idea that those words have an actual power. My daughter hates when when there's cursing going on. Not that there's a whole lot of it going on around her, but we actually have a swear jar that was instituted by her because <laughs> she doesn't want to hear her parents using bad words. Well, and they are magic words. I mean, that's sort of the whole point of this essay is that they magically produce this response in his parents when he used them. That was just like he was. These are words that are so powerful that if you just say one of them. There was this whole chain of unpleasant effects, but it's just instantly his father mm-hmm. backhanded him and and he was forbidden from playing with this boy. And, you know, they are words of power. And there is this way that if they're used constantly, they do sort of lose some of their power. Right. He says yeah. there's, there's a form of cynicism or hopelessness in, in putting the F word in every single sentence yep. you say. They and look- I feel like I hear that. I'll hear teenagers on the train sort of trying to impress each other with nonstop strings of profanity. And I sort of want to stop them and just say, you guys can just talk to each other, yeah. you know? Yeah. They lose their power and there's like a contagion effect to the words around them. They make the whole sentence use, lose their power. I think there's an, another one other important thing, which is I don't know if on this show you've ever discussed that short essay let 
um, on bullshit by Harry Frankfurt. But the idea of bullshit is really important. I just interviewed a professor named uh, Penny Cook was his last name, who did, I think he says, the first scientific study about how we detect bullshit, essentially. So it was a great joy to write pseudo profound bullshit. Great joy that he wrote that in his headline. But I think it's an important thing to think about. And when John Stewart in his last show talked about sort of the war on bullshit, not being able, bullshit is very distinct from just mendacity or lying or misleading. It's an important thing to think about. And I think calling bullshit on bullshit and using the word bullshit is an important thing. Right, because that is an, an, a deflationary act, right? That would be precisely a moment when something needs to be brought down to a more base level because whatever that person is saying, whatever the rhetoric is, is, is aspiring to some sort of truth or profundity that it doesn't have. I predict that as a Hail Mary in a presidential debate, or maybe not a debate, but somewhere, a candidate, it might be Trump, will say bullshit on something, and that will, that will be a, a day's story. Someone's going to get called bullshit in the public sphere, and that will set the world on its ear. We'll see if that happens in this upcoming campaign. I mean, I just I guess I just find it fascinating that I guess all languages, I don't know if this is true, but all languages must contain such words, right? This must be sort of a necessity of human language that there have to be words that that express taboo ideas and that provide a release of of anger or a release of energy in some way. That it's it's I'm sure there are linguists out there writing about this. Yeah, right? and they're usually, you know, words for people's genitals, words for sex, words for shit basically. And than some kind of religious transgression. I mean, they're they're kind of the same in every, the high every language. Low, yeah, right? there are weird sort of curses where you say, you know, your uncle is a gander or something, and you're and how it dare you? <laughs> I'm storming out of the studio, <laughs> yeah. Laura. My or, uncle is no gander, <laughs> and you make some gesture that is totally innocuous in in your society and is completely offensive in another society. So there are some things that sort of change in that way, but those those are kind of the basics, you know, the as Edmondson says, the basic bodily functions and the religious sort of disrespect or transgression. Lolo canna papiki. What does that mean? It's Hawaiian for stupid son of a bitch. How <laughs> <laughs> dare you? <laughs> all right. Well, I guess uh, we'll we'll all agree that we're going to continue to swear in the appropriate context and <laughs> and not swear in the other context, so that when we do swear, it's special. <laughs> it's, it's like it's, it has to spark joy, right? It that curse word has joy. to spark joy when you hold it in your mouth. It's definitely sparked joy in me every time Mike has cursed in this. And <laughs> Very good. This That's, I'm here to help. <laughs> so again, the piece is in the Los Angeles Review of Books. It's by Mark Edmondson, and it's called On Shit, Profanity as Weltanschauung. So go take a look and tell us what you thought with as many curse words as you care to include at facebook.com slash culturefest. And now, Mike, it's the time when we talk about our other, other sponsor. Who have we got? The answer is the 21st Annual Critics' Choice Awards on A&E, the CCAs, the Critic Choice, Critics' Choice Awards. They're a night to honor the best of film and TV, hosted by T.J. Miller from Silicon Valley and Deadpool. And I think, didn't he play a Bullwink. Didn't he play a moose, a cartoon moose in a movie? We'll have to check that. That did not win a Critics' Choice Award. <laughs> but T.J. Miller is hosting it, and some of the nominations include Mad Max. I saw on Rotten Tomatoes that was the best-reviewed movie of the year. Star Wars The Force Awakens is nominated for Best Picture. We'll see who does well. Dana, you're a critic. Aren't you happy they're giving you an award? Well, sort of. You're giving them an award. <laughs> yeah, I wish the Critics' Choice Awards was for favorite critic. You know, that would be, that would be nice. <laughs> Tune in live for the Critics' Choice Awards. I keep saying critic. It's not just one guy. It's the Critics' Choice Awards on A&E live on January 17th at 8, 5 Pacific time for one of the biggest nights in Hollywood. The Critics' Choice Awards hosted by T.J. Miller on A&E. And Dana, take us to the endorsements, if you will. <laughs> yes, we've already, guys, arrived at that part of the show where we endorse. I'm kind of sorry our conversation's over. But uh, let's start with you, Laura. What have you got? Well, we've just come out of the holiday season, and I did what lots and lots of people do in that sort of lullish week between Christmas and New Year's, which is that I played a video game. And that video game is called Don't Starve. And it's a survival game. I'm not a huge fan of the more traditional video games. I'm not that big on combat. I don't have the fastest hand-eye coordination and reflex. This, what I love about this game is that it's set in this kind of slightly wacky gothic 
animated world. It's a little like a Tim Burton sort of world. You're plunked down in the middle of a strange wilderness environment. So we we obviously still have the wilderness survival theme, and you have to figure out how to survive. It's a strange world full of pigmen and... And uh, growling spiders. Are there any virtual horses you can insert yourself into (laughs) for night's sleep? But there are beefalo, (laughs) (laughs) which you'll just have to play the game if you want to find out what those are. So hunting is involved, virtual hunting. There's some hunting. There's some some gathering. There's some crafting. There's some building. You know, eventually you can travel to underground caves where there are the ruins of an ancient civilization. And the one that I was playing this weekend is a new module. One of the things that I love about Don't Starve is it's this kind of vast world with so many different features to it and all this kind of weird lore and mythology behind it. And the new module is a, a uh, you're shipwrecked in a tropical archipelago and you have to figure out how to sail from island to island gathering food and not being killed by all the many, many things that want to kill you. I love archipelago-based video games. That sounds awesome. I didn't know you were going to endorse. So here's the video game, the app video game I've been playing with my kids. I don't... I mean, they like the shoot 'em up things. This is more zen. In fact, if Kondo had a video game, you'll see why she'd like this. It's called Prune. We're oh, I've sw- heard Have this. You heard is of this is wonderful. So yeah. you grow a tree, but the key, the tree will Mike grow by itself. Mike is demonstrating this to us on his phone right now. You see how now. beautiful it is? And it is. what you have to do is prune the branches so that the tree makes it to the sunlight. And when the tree makes it to the sunlight, it will reward you with some flowers. Oh, my tree did not make it. It is withering in the wind. Maybe I need to prune some this more branches. This is so condo. It really, really it is. is. And as, you, as I prune the branches, you see, you prune a branch, the tree grows. And look what happens. It oh, just reached the sunlight. Flower. I got a flower. That was not to be my endorsement, but I'm happy to share prune with you. My endorsement is challenging my beliefs. That's too global. In the specific about George Lucas. So I think like a lot of people, we thought he was great. Then he exposed himself with those prequels not to be great. But now perhaps we reconsider. Um, one way, one interesting challenge. I really liked Star Wars The Force Awakens. I really think it benefited from taking George Lucas out of the creative process. And yet, isn't this an example of a soulless giant corporation removing the auteur and yet things got better? So that's an interesting thing. But then George Lucas did an interview with Charlie Rose where he made reference to this and uh, used some derogatory language towards Disney, which he later recanted. But this, and it was excerpted in the Wall Street Journal also, was a really interesting thing to think about. Let me quote George Lucas here. In the world we live in, in the system we've created for ourselves, in terms of it's a big industry, you cannot lose money. So the point is you're forced to make a particular kind of movie. And I used to say this all the time with people, you know, back when Russia was the Soviet Union, you'd say, oh, but aren't you so glad you're in America? And I'd say, well, I know a lot of Russian filmmakers and they have a lot more freedom than I have. All they have to do is be careful about criticizing the government. Otherwise, they could do anything they want. I thought that was really interesting. And the last interesting reconsideration of George Lucas I'll throw in there was a review written by Bryant Merchant in Vice where I don't really buy it, but he makes a good argument and it's encapsulated in the headline of the article, The Force Awakens is the least interesting Star Wars yet. And he at least talked about how George Lucas prequels failures yet more interesting than what we saw on the screen. That so delighted us. And I'm going to endorse, because we talked about Marie Kondo this week, and because I'm about to start my book leave, which is going to start off with a massive condification of my apartment. I'll let you all know how that goes. I'm going to endorse a really, really funny parody of the Marie Kondo system that was written by Mallory Ortberg, who we can now call Slate's own Mallory Ortberg, because she's our new Dear Prudence Advice columnist. But she wrote this piece on her own website, The Toast, early in 2015. It's called How to Get Rid of Clutter and Live Abundantly. And really just all the pleasure lies in the the, the reading itself, whether or not you've read Marie Kondo, which I hadn't at the time I read this, you will find it absolutely hilarious. And I'll just give you my favorite one of her bulleted list of tips of how to declutter your apartment, which is, the only furniture you need is a single smooth stone that reminds you of your mother. (laughs) (laughs) And she just, she perfectly nails that kind of new age ditziness that makes Marie Kondo so sort of inimitably. That is a great parody. (laughs) You're familiar? Yeah, so I definitely, I'm a huge Mallory Orberg fan, and that is really one of her most sublime. Yeah, that was one that I sent around to everyone I knew, including my mother, who I need to get a single smooth stone that reminds me of. (laughs) All right, guys, thanks so much for joining me this week, Laura and Mike. 
Oh, you're welcome. My pleasure. It was really fun. We we tried to be as good as as uh, Julia and Steve, and hopefully we got a little close. Tried oh, to yeah. curse as much as they would. Yeah. I don't yeah, think we reached that. None goal. of us can curse as much as Steve does. You were most able companions, and I hope you'll both come back on soon. You'll find links to some of the things we talked about today on our show page, slate.com slash culturefest. And you can email us at culturefest at slate.com or drop us a note at our Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash culturefest. Our producer is Ann Hepperman. Our intern is Lindsay Albrecht. Andy Bowers is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts. And the Culture Gab Fest is, of course, part of the Panoply Network. You can see Panoply's entire roster on itunes.com slash panoply. And our Twitter feed is at Slate Cult Fest. For Laura Miller and Mike Pesca, I'm Dana Stevens. We'll talk to you next week. Vanity Fair's Little Gold Men podcast brings you the latest updates from the campaign trail. The Oscar campaign, that is. Will the voters choose the establishment favorite? It's Spielberg and it's Disney. You know, it goes down easy enough. An upstart outsider with a compelling story. There's a chance you show it and the audience just goes, I do not accept Jason Segel as David Foster Wallace. Or has the eventual winner not even entered the race yet? And we were all sitting here this year waiting on these three December movies that no one has seen. Subscribe to Little Gold Men from Vanity Fair and Panoply.